Good morning. How y'all doing? Good. Welcome to One Church. Uh, we are so stoked that you're here for our second part of our series entitled Letters to the Next President. And uh, we are um, we're looking at some Old Testament advisors uh, and some of the advice they gave to their own political uh, heads of state, if you would. Last week we looked at um, a king, some advice given to a king. Uh, t- today we're going to be looking at advice given to a governor. Some of you didn't think there was actually governors in the Bible, uh, but there are. And, uh, and then next week we're looking at advice given to uh, one of the most popular kings of Israel. And that'll be really, really fun. So um, uh, one of the things we're getting out of this is we're looking at some leadership principles from our big idea. Uh, Last week we talked about that our big idea was that leadership is stewardship, it's temporary, and you're always accountable. Uh, And today uh, we're going to be looking at authority, and I'm so stoked about uh, uh, being here with you this morning. How many of y'all have ever had a job or maybe been under somebody, somebody that had authority over you that you just didn't quite respect them? Anyone? Okay, all right. How many of y'all are like that now, right? Quite a few of us probably, right? Because somehow you just thought, well, maybe if I just got this job and maybe a stepping stone and this person that was over you, you just didn't quite really respect and you thought he was one person or she was one person and she actually turned out to be a totally different person. And that's usually the reason why we don't respect people. We usually don't respect the authorities over us is because many times they present themselves in one way but really, in reality, there's something totally different. They say some things, and then when they get around another group of people, they say something totally different. And uh, what you would, the reason why you don't respect them, and you wouldn't say it quite like this, but this is where we're going today, is because they lack something. They lack moral authority. And moral authority is the fact that there is alignment between two other types of authorities we're going to talk about. Um, the two authorities we're going to talk about is positional authority and personal authority. Let's kind of unpack that if we could before we get to our Bible story. Positional authority. Excuse me. (laughs) All right. Um, Positional authority is where you have a title, you have a position, and somebody respects you only because of that position or that title. So um, let's say uh, somebody who only leads from positional authority, they say a lot of words like, well, I'm the boss, or you should respect me more. And they throw out the respect, and you should do this for me more because of the title. I've got to be honest with you. Nobody, nobody likes following leaders when the only thing they talk about is their positional authority. Nobody likes that. Because we don't need to be reminded where they're at and where we're at. You see, we don't like following leaders that only lead from positional authority. That the, You're going to follow me because I have the job, I have the pay raise, I have the, 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 the grade scale. I'm the, I, we just don't like following people like that because they flaunt it in our faces. There is another type of authority, though. And the authority, this authority is called personal authority. And personal authority is where you've earned the right. That somebody respects you because you might have the position, you might be the leader, but the reason why they respect you is because it's not you're flaunting it, hey, respect me because of my title. You say, you know what, this is who I am. And they respect you because of who you are. 
because of your integrity, because of your consistency in your words and your deeds. Now, when both of those come together, when you have positional authority and when you have personal authority, when you put those together, you have moral authority. And that is what we all want. There's a great clip I want to talk about uh, that really illustrates the difference between personal and positional authority. And it's from the clip Braveheart. How many of y'all are guys? This is a guy movie. All right? Um, I love this movie. And uh, in this movie, you have a commoner, somebody who doesn't have any titles, no positional authority. His name is William Wallace. And everybody's following him to the, to the ends of the earth because he's the real deal. Uh, in there, he's, he's going to have a conversation with somebody who has positional authority, who has the title. His name is Richard, uh, Richard uh, uh, Lionheart. And uh, this dude, uh, he's the king of Scotland, and uh, nobody likes this dude. So um, if you would, let's watch this clip and let's see how this plays out. to provide those people with freedom. And I go to make sure that they have it. Wait! I respect what you said. But remember that these men have lands and castles much to risk. And the common man that bleeds on the battlefield, does he risk less? No. But from top to bottom, this country has got no sense of itself. Its uh, nobles share allegiance with England. Its clans war with each other. Right. Right. If you make enemies on both sides of the border, you'll end up there. We all end up dead. It's just a question of how uh, why. I'm not a coward. I want what you want. But we need the nobles. We need them. Uh. <laughs> now tell me, what does that mean to be noble? Your title gives you claim to the throne of our country. But men don't follow titles. They follow courage. Now our people know you. Noble and common, they respect you. And if you would just lead them to freedom, 
so would I. Here we have Richard Lionheart. Richard the Lionheart, who has the title, but nobody's following him. And William Wallace, who just got a title, but the only reason he got the title was because people had been following him into battle for months and months. People don't follow, follow titles. They follow courage. They follow personal integrity. And that's really what we're talking about today. And that leads us to our big idea. And our big idea is simply this, that we respect leaders who lead from personal authority and not just from positional authority. We respect leaders who lead from personal authority and not just positional authority. Just because somebody has a title doesn't mean we respect them. Y'all know this. Because you have people over you who have titles that we don't respect. Um, so uh, in, really, in the United States of America, people expect not only their political leaders, but also their religious leaders to have this personal moral authority that we've been talking about. That there would be an alignment between what we say and what we do and how we present ourselves and who we really are. And when we don't have that, we get very angry. That's the reason why so many of you are, are cynical or have been cynical about church. Because you've been to church and you've seen, uh, you've seen people present themselves in such a way that they say they're one thing, but really there's something totally different. And they have a duplicitous lifestyle. So, um, or that's the reason why so many of you are cynical about the political process. Um, uh, my mom worked the voting booth this past Thursday, and she said uh, that um, there was just not very many people that showed up at the polls uh, on Thursday. And, and the reason why was so many people are just checking out and saying, you know what, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to do this, is because we're cynical. We don't believe that, that there's a leader actually out there who actually for them to say what they say and then they actually do what they say they're going to do on both parties. So many of us, we just kind of throw, thrown our hands up in the air and said, you know what, we're just we're kind of done with it. Um, I would say this, and, and before we get into Nehemiah, that um, one of the things that we would say up front to our president is that you're going to have the title. Whether you got voted for or not, whoever gets into office, you're going to have the title. So lead with courage. Lead with personal and moral authority. Um, we're going to be looking today at a, a governor by the name of Nehemiah. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 5. It's kind of a hard book to find. And I'm going to set this up while you're looking at it. Nehemiah chapter 5. Um, last week, we talked about um, that uh, there was a time in Israel's history where Israel kind of went out of business. Uh, and the reason why is because God said, here, you need to do this. You need to follow my instructions. And if you don't, I'm going to discipline you. And they didn't follow his instructions. So God allowed a foreign, uh, a foreign power, war power, to come in and conquer them and to drag all these people from Jerusalem to Babylon. The Babylonians under King Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. came in and wiped out the, the temple, wiped out uh, the, the religious system uh, of, of Jerusalem, excuse me. <clears throat> and um, from there... Uh, he kind of went back. And then uh, the, the Babylonians decreased in power, and then the Persians came in. And we're going to be looking at a conversation that happened between Nehemiah, who is a Jewish man, uh, in the cabinet of this king, this Persian king called Artaxerxes, 
in 444 B.C. Now, Nehemiah the, the, uh, had never been to Jerusalem. He's been a captive, um, and he was born in captivity. He's never been to Jerusalem. He's never been to Israel before. And uh, he gets this, this news that the temple, of course, is destroyed. There is no wall, and things are not good. The economy's not good. So he goes to the king, Artaxerxes, because king, uh, excuse me, Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. Um, and uh, <clears throat> what's so cool about a cupbearer is they're very, very important in that day because the, the, the kings would drink wine, and uh, they would, if you got some wine, a lot of times people would try to poison the king, so they would give it to the cupbearer. And Nehemiah would drink the wine. And if he didn't die, it was a good thing for both Nehemiah and the king. So, okay, king, I didn't die. Here's your wine. It's good. So he was, very tru- he was a very much of a trusted official. Uh, some people even argue he was kind of like a prime minister with King Artaxerxes. And he was always there giving advice and counsel. He was part of the king's cabinet. So Nehemiah goes to King Artaxerxes and says, listen, king, um, I just got some news. Jerusalem is just getting worse and worse. The economy's bad. There is no wall. And uh, the reason why there is no wall is because your predecessor came in and knocked it down. So would you mind if I go back and build the wall? Now, I know that may be a problem because the reason why it was knocked down is because we didn't behave ourselves. <clears throat> but I'm asking you, can I go back and build the wall? And King Artaxerxes, because he trusted Nehemiah, said, yes, absolutely. You can not only go back, but... I'm going to give you money. I'm going to give you timber. I'm going to give you letters and, and so that you can get through there fine. In fact, I'm going, to make you, I'm going to give you a title. I'm going to give you a position. We're going to call you the governor of Jerusalem. And I want you to go back, and I want you to rebuild the superpower, and we're going to revamp and reboot Judaism back up again. And you're going to have to pay taxes to us. But uh, I'm going to give you that authority. So Nehemiah is leaving out of captivity and goes back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he sees a horrific sight. Everything is destroyed. The temple is, is gone. The walls are gone. And all these people are trying to make a, a living inside the city. Now, the walls were very important in that time. It's kind of like, how many of y'all like having front doors? All right? Now, why do you have a front door? So that you can keep people out, right? That's how walls were. Walls kept bad people out. And you can't live, you can't live here in North Clarksville or anywhere or South Dover without a front door because you just invite people to come in. So he starts building this wall. And what's so spanking cool, he built the wall around Jerusalem in a record time, 52 days. So he comes in there, he says, I'm your governor, let's build the wall. I'm here, we're going to go to work, we're going to build the wall, we're going to build the wall. And they did. In 52 days, they built the wall. So, um, so he came in, he promised one thing, and he delivered on his promise. Well, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 6, we look at the economy was in total shambles. Now, uh, what happened up to this point is p- these foreign nations would come in and charge exorbitant interest. And uh, the, uh, because there was people, get, things kept on getting stolen because there was no wall. Hey, I need to rebuy that again. I don't have the money. Just charge it. And they, had, they developed these huge charge accounts with interest. And, and they, they sold wives and children and lands and cattle. They sold them all in the debt. And they didn't have anything else to sell. I mean, they are just literally hocked up to their gills. Anybody feel like that? All right. So they're hocked up to the gills. Nehemiah comes in and says, this is not good. 
So he comes in and he starts, he takes with his own money, he buys back all of these wives, children, lands, cattle, all this stuff, and these foreign creditors, and he gives them their freedom. And then the Jewish nobles, the, the, their own people, starts charging high interest rates, and then they start getting in the, in the very same condition. And this is where we start in verse 6. When I heard the outcry of these charges, Nehemiah says, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and the officials. I told them, you are charging your own people interest. So I'll call together a large meeting to deal with them. Now, you've got to understand, in this culture, the Bible told the Jewish people that they could not charge interest to their own people. That if you're a Jew, you can't charge another Jew interest. All right? Um, and they were. And they came right back around, and they, these Jewish nobles took their land, took their crops, took the people, they, everything got, they, their land got sold, and then they rehired the, per, the people who used to own the land to work their own land and then to raise grain, and then they would sell the grain at high prices and nobody could afford it. So things are awful. Economy stinks. Nehemiah finds out about this. This is what he says in verse 8. As far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. So he bought back the people that the Gentiles who had enslaved of the Jews. Then he discovers his own Jewish brothers doing it in verse 8. Now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they had nothing to say. Nehemiah says, I go out and I spend my own money and my own time to buy these people back from the people, these outside our enemies who have given us all this credit. And I get them free and then you enslave your own neighbor down the street, and you start charging them interest, all right? These crazy interest rates again. There's a Hebrew word for that. Anybody know what it is? Called jacked up, all right? Verse 9, <coughs> he says, you should know better. You should have known better to do this. Verse 9, so I continue, what you're doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of other Gentile nations? He's saying, our country has become a laughingstock. It was a laughing stop before, and we're trying to fix it, and you're part of the problem. Our, our own neighbors, our own people, our own Jewish uh, country is part of the problem here. You're, you're making, you've, we've created our own bad economy. And what they're doing, our enemies are just waiting in their wings to, to swoop in and buy it all back up, and it's going to be worse than before. So, verse 10, I and my brothers and my men, these are the people that came with Nehemiah, from a captivity, are also lending the people money and grain. But let's stop charging interest. He says, I realize we've got to make some loans. I understand that. But you, you will not charge interest anymore. This is what he's saying. We don't want to be in debt for foreign loans or for foreign grain. That sound familiar? Very applicable to what's going on right now. In other words, in the Jewish economy, they didn't want to be dependent upon foreign grain. They didn't want to be dependent on other nations for foreign loans. Nehemiah is saying, we're going to have to pull together or we're all going to fall apart. Or as Benjamin Franklin once said, we all better hang together because if not, we're all going to hang separately. So, we go back into it. Verse 11. Give back to them. This is Nehemiah talking to these Jewish nobles. Give back to them immediately. Everybody say the word immediately. Immediately, their fields, vineyards, 
olive groves and houses and all the interest you are charging them. 100% of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. Nehemiah says, guys, here's what you're going to do. You're not only going to not do this in the future. You're going to stop your interest rates, the, the 21% interest that you're charging. All right? Uh, or you're going to, you know, what's in your wallet? Well, not much because we're all paying it in interest. All right? You're going to stop it. But not only you're going to stop it, you're going to give back their interest. You're going to give 100% of it back. You're not going to tax the people anymore. You're going to give it back to them. You're going to take a major lifestyle cut, Jewish nobles. Major. You're going to have to go back and tell your wife that she's not going to be able to buy that new Lexus chariot that y'all been keeping your eye on. You're going to tell, you have to go back and tell your, your kids that they're not going to be able to go to private Jewish school all right, because you're getting ready to take a major lifestyle cut because you're the problem. Nehemiah, the governor, is up in their face doing this. You're going to stop it. Verse 12, and this is how they respond. (laughs) We will give it back, they said, and we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Right. Right. (laughs) We will do as you say. You know what? I'm a little skeptical, to be honest with you, with that little response. And you know, the thing about it is, Nehemiah was too. Because talk is cheap. Anybody can say one thing, but are they going to follow through? Again, that's the personal positional authority we've been talking about. So Nehemiah is skeptical, so look what Nehemiah does. Verse 12, Then I summoned the priest and made the nobles and officials take an oath for what they had promised. He says, you know what? I don't believe you. He says, you're going to take an oath. Now hear me, if you... If you force somebody to make a promise or take an oath, that pretty much means they're not a really good person because their word's not worth much. So Nehemiah says, you know what, here's what we're going to do. We're going to bring God into this. He says, what, you're saying one thing. Well, I'm going to say, you know what, let's bring the priest, let's bring here, and we're going to make, we're going to, we're going to make you promise with God as our witness and everybody else that what you promised to me just in private in this little meeting we've had, we're taking it public, and everybody's going to hear it, that this is what you're going to do. All right? This is what you're going to do. So, Nehemiah gets really emotional at this point, and it says in verse 13, I also shook out the folds of my robe. He's starting to shake everything out. And this is what he's saying. In this way, may God shake out, shake out of their houses and possessions anyone, <clears throat> anyone who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. What Nehemiah says, you know what, you can fool God, excuse me, you can fool me, you can fool the people, but you can't fool God. He said, you're saying you're going to promise this, and here's what I'm saying, if you don't follow up on your promise, I'm asking God to come after you. I'm asking God to go for the jugular and for him to shake out, shake away all of your houses, lands, and possessions. All right? So, verse 13, at this point, the whole assembly said, Amen. Shake them out, God, all right? And praise the Lord, and the people did as they promised. Did you hear that last part? And the people did as they promised. These Jewish nobles, they actually did what they said they were going to do. That's hard for me to imagine. It's hard for me to imagine. It would be kind of like if whoever the next president of the United States is 
after he got in office, said, you know what, I want, we're going to have a meeting. We're going to have a come to Jesus. And he starts inviting CEOs of all these corporations, of corporations you think maybe are not doing well. All right? So he, he invites all the, the, the oil companies, their CEOs in. He invites the healthcare companies. He invites the, um, uh, the credit card companies. He's char- charging all the big interest. And he says, you're invited, you're going to show up at the White House, and no lawyers. Not inviting any lawyers. So the lawyers can't come. So all these CEOs show up at the White House, and he gets toe-to-toe in their face, and he says, stop it. Stop it. You made $90 billion in, the oil companies made $90 billion in excess of funds last year. Stop it. He goes to the credit card. Stop it. And they actually stop it. See, this is more than just going doing the law. This is going above the law. I mean, can you even imagine something like that happening in our day? It's kind of crazy. But see, Nehemiah had so much moral authority. He had the position, but he also had the personal authority that he could stand toe-to-toe and he could say, you need to stop doing what you're doing, and they listen. How? Well, we're going to find out how in the next verse. Look at the next verse. It says this. Here's the reason why Nehemiah was able to get so much traction. Verse 14 says this. Moreover, Nehemiah is still talking. From the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, until the 32nd year, how many years is that? Twelve years. Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governor. This is huge. Nehemiah had been there for 12 years, and when he had showed up, he had the right to collect taxes. He had the right to buy land. He had the power to get anything from the people that he wanted because he was their governor. In fact, there was a certain amount of food allotted to the governor that he made their living on their backs. He was able to get from them the food that they produced. So a footnote about this whole meeting with these Jewish nobles is that Nehemiah says for the past 12 years, by the way, you ought to know, the 12 years leading up to this little conversation you and I are having, here's what's happened. I'm not, I've, not, I've not done anything that I'm not asking you to do. And I've been doing it for 12 years. So I want you to stop it. So Nehemiah says, nor me, nor my family, my, my cabinet, my staff, my brothers, my sisters, all of us who came, none of us bought land. <clears throat> we didn't take the food that was allotted to us. We didn't charge taxes. Verse 15, but the earlier governors... Those preceding me, they placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. He said, you know what? When, the, when, when I showed up and my people, my entourage, they, everybody was expecting, hey, oh, here we go again. And we're going to have to pay his bills. The people expected to have to feed me, to pay my bills. The people expected me to tax them. The people expected me to come in and to buy up all this land, and I didn't do any of that. I had my right. I had every right to. It was legally. I wasn't breaking the law, but I chose not to do it. Why? Out of reverence 
for God. That's the reason. Out of reverence for God. He viewed his situation the best he could through the eyes of God, and he decided, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do this. Verse 16, it said, Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All of my men were assembled there for the work, and we did not acquire any land. Again, this is amazing. Nehemiah says, you know what? When I I first showed up, this is what I said. My campaign promise was this. We're going to rebuild the wall. Well, Nehemiah, governor, what are you going to do in the first 90 days of your office? We're going to build the wall. Where are you going to be? I'm going to be on the wall. We're going to be building the wall. That's what we're doing. That is our goal. That is our vision. And he did it, and he accomplished it in 52 days as we looked at. He says, if you want to find me, my family, my officials, we're going to be on the wall. Now, he says, and by the way, I didn't acquire any land. Again, this is kind of amazing, but you would think somebody, because there wasn't any banks or stock markets in that day, land ownership was everything, kind of like how it is in a lot of ways today. You want to own land. So he, would, he went in and he could have bought up all this land and created this huge superpower, and the land values would have went what? Up, up, up. But he says, you know what? I'm not going to buy any land. And none of my people, none of my family, my cabinet, my staff, none of us are going to buy land. Even though we could, we got the money, honey, all right? And you got the time, all right? He said, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to buy the land. We're going to let you keep the land, and we're going to do work. We're going to serve you so that the land value will go up. Because we want to see this economy get better, and not just our pocketbooks get better, all right? So he says, you know what? The reason why I'm doing this is because I have reverence for God, verse 17 and 18. Uh, Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from surrounding nations. Each each day, one ox, one six short... Ah, sorry. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry, that's chickens, all right, were all prepared for me in every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to me as the governor because the demands were heavy on the people. He says, you know what? I'm not going to be living in comfort when everybody else is living hard. And I'm going to feed a bunch of people at my, at my place. That's kind of what he did in his crib. Verse 19, remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I've done for these people. And you know what? Because Nehemiah had such great personal and moral authority, he had the position, but because he led with integrity, these Jewish nobles had nothing to say. They they just said, you know what? We're going to do it. Because Nehemiah had provided for them an example by his own life for the past 12 years because what he said and what he did matched. That's the reason why they took him seriously, because what he promised is what he delivered on. It drove them to do something that they had never imagined doing, because his authority went way beyond his position, and it moved into moral and personal authority. And this is what you want, Dad. This is what you want in your marketplace. This is what you want in your educational system. This is what you want your kids' teachers to have. This is what you want in a pastor. This is what you want in a political figure. This is what you want in our next president. That what they say and what they do match. That they have the position, but
but they also lead from personal authority, and both of those are, when they're in alignment, something mystical and amazing happens because people will follow to the ends of the earth. They realize that I'm here to serve you and not you to serve me. That's what we want in the next president. This is the type of leader that we want. It goes beyond what the law says, and it's something much, much deeper. And, and it's really the whole central point of Christianity, <clears throat> that God says, hey, I love you. Well, talk is cheap. Okay, well, I'm going to send my son to die for you. For God so loved this awful, sin, terrible world that he what? That he gave his only one and only son. See, God has that position and personal authority and alignment, and he is our ultimate moral authority. And that's what we want. That's what we want. Is we, we want to see that in other Christians. We want to see that in our political figures. We want to see that in our religious figures. We want to see that in everyone. So, as we close today, if Nehemiah was forming a letter to our next president, giving him some advice, this is my this might be what it says. Dear Mr. President, for the next four years, you will be reminded on a daily basis whether or not the citizens of this country approve of your performance. Our hope is that you will set your sights on something far greater consequence than our approval. We want you to lead us in such a way to gain and maintain our respect. For that to happen, there must be consistency between what you say and what you do. This alignment will provide you with the moral authority necessary to lead and influence those who selected your name in November as well as those who did not. Conduct your public life in a way that positions you to confront without reservation those who have abused power and influence. And conduct your private life in such a way that you can speak with moral authority to husbands and fathers about the responsibilities at home. Our hope is that you will be a president whose actions will reflect the promises you have made and the values you claim to embody. If that happens, you will have something of far more value than our approval. You will have our respect. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you so much for allowing us to be able to see a person like Nehemiah who has such great moral authority and personal authority that he had the position but he led with so much more than that he led with his heart he led with courage and what he said and what he did were the same i pray that whoever our next president may be i pray that you may give him or her i pray that you would allow them to what they say and what they do would be the same i pray that you would protect them protect our country we love you so much jesus christ protect our troops, and continue to protect our, our, our nation as a whole. We love you so much, Jesus Christ, in your name. Amen.